Welcome to the Give to Profit podcast, the podcast that inspires business owners, entrepreneurs and leaders to turn their business into a profitable force for good. During our weekly episodes, you'll hear business leaders and entrepreneurs share how they put social impact at the heart of their business and the many benefits that come from doing this. You can find full show notes for today's show and additional resources at givetoprofit.com. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, where it would also be great if you could leave us a rating and review. For every review this month, we'll be sponsoring a child to go to school for a day in Cambodia. And so now here's your host, business mentor, speaker and author, Alison McKenzie. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Give to Profit podcast show. This is your host, Alison McKenzie, and I'm delighted to be here again with you today. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Colin Downey, who is the Sales and Partnership Director at a social enterprise called Wild Hearts. And this is the first interview that I'm doing on the topic of social sourcing, which is a really easy way that businesses can have social impact without really doing too much else other than choosing how to buy from social suppliers. Now, I can remember years ago being inspired about the story of how Wild Hearts came about and then attending one of their conferences when I was writing my Gift to Profit book. And Colin and I have been in touch in various different ways over the years since then. So welcome, Colin. It's lovely to have you on the show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, really great to be a part of the movement that you're creating. Thank you. And it'd be great to maybe just, if I can just ask you, just elaborate a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do at Wild Hearts. Sure. So I am the Sales and Partnership Director for the Wild Hearts Group. And I've been around Wild Hearts since its inception. So I can claim to be the first employee in the group. And I can't unfortunately claim the original idea. I've been around Wild Hearts since we had uh, zero customers, uh, zero impact with the foundation and genuinely did have very much of a clue. But I have grown both professionally and personally with the business from inception. And so my primary role is to drive the sales side of the business. So as a social enterprise, selling product is, is fundamental to the success of the group, but all of the profit from the business side of the business goes and creates an income stream for the Wild Hearts Foundation. So I'm primarily responsible for running the businesses that create income for the Wild Hearts Foundation. And the partnership side of my role means we have various partnerships with organizations like Social Enterprise UK, which is the largest member body for social enterprises in the UK. And I happen to sit on the board of that organization and other business organizations that support our work, like uh, Business in the Community, for example, or the Institute of Directors. Plus, we have a very diverse uh, supply chain that help us deliver on behalf of our customers, and I'm primarily responsible for those relationships as well. Fantastic. So, I mean, that's, you must have quite, it's almost a helicopter view of what's going on in, when it comes to social impact and business in the UK. That'd be right. I would like to think I am in many ways at the edge of various trends that both corporate business and SME are looking to the world of social supply chains. I also 
embedded in the work of the Wild Hearts Foundation. So that is personally of huge interest to me, but again, informs us on how impact is delivered through our foundation globally. What are some of the big international development agencies doing to release the potential of social enterprises in various uh, sectors? And also connects in with wider UN remits like uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, which inform all our thinking. So it's hugely interesting. One day I'll be directly involved in negotiating contracts, trying to win business. I'll also be trying to manage customers' requests and the impact that we drive on their behalf, because ultimately the foundation can't do very much without our customer base. Or I could be visiting one of our projects um, either in a far-flung region of the UK where we drive impact into our enterprise education program schools, or I've had the privilege to be in places like Malawi or India, visiting some of our microfinance clients that we invest in globally as well, all on the back of our customer base. So very varied, very interesting, and never two days are the same. It sounds an incredibly diverse role and, and very, very interesting. And I wonder if we could just also find out a little bit more about you. I mean, how have you ended up in this role and why do you feel so passionately about what the social impact side of things and all that you're doing? I think I I come from a very socially aware family and I think that makes a difference to inform thinking at a relatively early age. And I've always felt, without necessarily knowing the label social enterprise or social business, because that was genuinely a new label to both me and Mick, who's the founder of the Wild Hearts Group, neither of us knew the label social enterprise when we started our first business and the foundation. But I used to work for a couple of different corporate businesses post-university, and I felt there's many reasons that I felt I didn't have much of a voice in those businesses. I was potentially a little bit of an upstart with non-conventional thinking. And I also worked for one, both, actually two businesses who had hugely powerful GDP positions, or what I should say, sorry, is their turnover gave them GDP positions that would make them bigger than you know, 75 countries in the world. It put them into the top 75 countries in the world by GDP. And I had this general sense that the world was full of money, but it didn't necessarily go to help people who could need it most. And many people are aware that Poverty is a, a sort of generally a man-made problem and ultimately a result of, of a sort of capitalist ideology at times. And I just had the sense of that, that businesses could and should stand for something greater. I was serendipitously introduced to Mick, the founder and CEO, before he started Wild Hearts by a mutual friend. We were at the mutual friend's wedding. And I was, my mutual friend and Mick's mutual friend knew that, it might be a good idea for Mick and I to talk, simply stated. And I went to meet Mick and I had wide-ranging conversations with him that ultimately seemed like a very interesting opportunity. It was a chance to start a business without having to invest independent and uh, personal capital and something that I felt I could bring my individual skill set, which would be sales background, entrepreneurial background, ready to work very, very hard but to do it and use the profit and ultimately give the profit away. So it was sustainable. We weren't asking for donations. That didn't interest me. I didn't want to be 
associated with the charitable sector directly looking for fundraising, I felt my skills were much broader than that. And it meant I could bring and align the best of those worlds together. And ultimately in 2007, just about 10 years ago, the Wild Hearts Group was born with the Wild Hearts Foundation and our very first business, which was a stationary company selling really boring things, pens, paper, toner cartridges, everyday office items. The strap line for that business is even a bad day at the office saves lives. So we were deliberately targeting businesses and a product that we knew every business needed. We hoped no business would really care where they got their office supplies from, but if they could buy it from us, the same price, the same products, the same quality of product, we would use the profit for the foundation. We wanted to be able to ask the question, would you buy from us? And it started with no customers and people started saying yes to us. And I knocked doors, literally knocked doors of offices on at Strathclyde Business Park and around the Central Belt and over in Edinburgh and all around Glasgow area and convinced people that we had a good idea and it has literally built from there. So we can remember our first customers and several of those early customers are, are still our customers today. And there are good people all over the place in any business, in any service line. And often you just have them to give them a very credible way to express it. And if I had, if you could ask me now that we would be doing what we're doing now, the level of impact, the, the sheer volume of countries that we're operating in, I wouldn't have believed you, but everything starts somewhere with an idea. And I'm sure you're quite similar with some of the conversations that we've had about writing a book and, and how serendipitous moment in many ways made you change the way that you were going to pro approach a professional career and you were brave enough to walk down a different path and I'm sure you, it's impossible now to change that tack and you know very I'm sure excited as to where all these conversations are going and, and yes yeah, it's been serendipitous but when an opportunity like that's presented I think the right person has to take that opportunity and, and ultimately I'm glad that I did so because it's been really incredible journey. I'm expecting to never have to use a CV again. That's the hope. And uh, <laughs> we continue to develop for the rest of my career, so to speak. Yeah, and what you've just described, I mean, I just love hearing how people become the people they are today. And of course, we will change in the future as we continue on our journey. But everybody's just so different. And yet the common thread is definitely comes around what you said right at the start about those social values, if you're in this line of work, and how when we connect with people at a values level, we start to have those conversations, great opportunities can present themselves. But what I also liked hearing what you've said there is that the way that you were proactive in making this all happen too, and having the courage to jump in and be part of. Yeah. And it didn't come without risk. I think it's easy for, you know, no business, no entrepreneur, no success story is a success story overnight. It just doesn't exist that way. And ultimately, people do have to take risks and manage risks. And, and I took a large pay cut in the early days to take the opportunity. This was a business that didn't have any customers and ultimately didn't have any income. They had, to, they had an overdraft. And we had the rule for the door in the sense that we had to go and convert customers quickly we had to start selling product we had to start making a profit and we had to bootstrap and make sure that expenditure was kept very very tight in those early days and those principles still exist to this day but things do get easier 
but it did require, there was a, it was a time in my life where I had an opportunity, I think, to take some more of those risks, which ultimately I wouldn't be able to take those risks in the same way at the age I am now and this bit further down the line. So it was the right time, the right place, the right person to inspire me and the right level of risk and entrepreneurial sort of a, a deep entrepreneurial breath, if you like, that we were going to give this a go and we felt we could make it happen. And the journey has been far richer than we, and I say we as in sort of Mick and I, could ever, ever have expected. And I think it, once we started to, I'm not particularly religious, but the idea of seek and you shall find, as we started to progress down this road of social procurement and doing something very different with the profit. It's been amazing how many doors have opened to us because we were asking questions, we were being genuine, and we were looking for people to buy and to help us. And doors just started opening everywhere because we were knocking on them and we were pushing them. And I don't think we could have foreseen that either. So that's been a very rich journey with the people that we've met and the people who buy from us and, and many supporters who we consider to be really true friends now. Mm -hmm. Yeah and what's interesting is that you set up the social enterprise as you've said as the income generator and then you've had got a separate foundation. I mean where did the inspiration for having the two components come from because effectively what you've done is create your own what I would call is a different example of the give to profit model where you just you have a business and you have your own foundation rather than being some of our listeners might be in business and want to support other people's causes in different ways but what was the inspiration or the reasons behind right we know that we definitely want to have impact and this is the particular impact that we want to have it's a good question actually and i think i could probably give you two or three different elements here that will build a, a broader answer uh, first and foremost our skill set was in entrepreneurialism and business development so starting the business as a sustainable form of income for the foundation naturally aligned with our skill sets and motivations. So it made sense for us to start a business with a viewpoint that we were going to start others and continue to generate income. But at its core, that was a sustainable way to create monies. You know, we weren't going around the same people, friends and family, looking for donations. Ultimately, philanthropy at its core is relatively unsustainable. It has a very powerful place in the world, but it's ultimately non-sustainable. So we were aligned to building businesses that could create that sustainable form of income. And secondly, by having the foundation, registered foundation in the group, it meant that foundation was going to have trustees. The money was in a different legal entity. So anybody who wanted to question our motives wouldn't, when they scratched below the surface, would see that any profit that was made the move to the foundation was then sacrosanct in the income and turnover of the foundation and not sitting in the business. So it meant the business stood for something greater. And then when the income was generated and put in the foundation, it was independent of us in the group. So that was key to us from the start and something that personally really interested me from the outset. I'll be honest to say that the foundation, when it started, we didn't have a key theme. And now we're involved in microfinancing with investments in over 40 countries, but we didn't know what microfinance was until about three or four years into the foundation's development. So original outlook changed with the foundation. And I think from an entrepreneurial perspective, you have to be prepared to do that. But equally, if we were gonna work really, really hard to build a business, 
personally, and it's everybody's choice, we didn't want to give the money to other organisations where we couldn't control the impact that that money could create. So if we were going to work really hard in our business group, we weren't going to then pay the wages of other foundations if we felt we could invest that money more efficiently further down the line. So I think it was important to us to have a foundation within the group so that we could create multiple businesses and ultimately, between ourselves and the trustees, help make sure that we could maximize the volume of impact that the foundation could create. And one other interesting point is that the business group subsidizes the administration costs of the foundation. So we absorb all sorts of administration costs in the general group infrastructure. So the foundation has less than 3% overheads. So by building the businesses and putting our business skills into the business group infrastructure, we absolutely maximize uh, the level of impact we can create with the monies. And it is extremely difficult to find another example of a foundation anywhere in the UK that has less than 3% admin costs. So multiple ideas there for you to take in, but that was how we wanted to go about it and just make sure that the long-term goal was to make the group and the foundation as efficient as possible, ultimately, so we can maximise the amount of impact that we're driving. Yeah, there are so many different threads in there. I mean, I like how you've said, you know, that you didn't necessarily have that, the fixed vision for where the foundation was going to go, but you've allowed, you've had that evolve. And, you know, the way that you've structured it, especially around the admin costs, I think is, is really interesting as well. Could you elaborate a little bit more then on terms of what, we know what the social enterprise focuses on as the main income generator there. What are the main sort of activities of the foundation or the type of projects that you support? I think we always went into the development of the foundation's work with the idea that we didn't just want to be providing aid or development impact that again wasn't necessarily going to be sustainable. Almost everybody I meet to this day often repeats quotes back to us about um, you know, feeding a man a fish, feeds him for a day, teach a man to fish, and he can feed himself and his family for his lifetime. So we were always keen on that type of development model that you gave the people who would benefit from the foundation tools and opportunities for them to create sustainable development inputs into themselves and the families, however that might manifest itself. So we were actually introduced to microfinance. Some of your listeners may be aware of that, but uh, the man who conceptualized and developed microfinance in the early 80s was called Mohammed Yunus, and he got a Nobel Peace Prize in 2010. Interestingly, he's an economics professor, and he is the only economics professor to end up with a Nobel Peace Prize for conceptualizing the idea of lending money to the world's poorest people, broadly because they were excluded from the financial system. And we were introduced to microfinance by Mel Young, the founder of Big Issue Scotland. And he and his fellow founders in the Big Issue had a similar mindset that actually what people don't need a lot of the time, although I'm generalizing here, so I hope your listeners won't give me into trouble, what people don't need a lot of the time is aid and charity, although they can play very powerful parts in, in helping people get on their feet. The big issue founders wanted homeless people to have jobs and wanted them to have the right level of dignity to be able to work through way out of poverty. And that was the founding ethos of where the big issue came from. So as Mel Young introduced us to microfinance and very quickly we learned about microfinance and felt this is in many ways exactly what we've been looking for. And 
it was about sustainable investment. So in a nutshell, microfinance provides safe forms of credit and loans to the world's poorest people, primarily women, who are excluded from financial systems, and that allows them to invest that income into sustainable businesses, either businesses they've got already that they struggle to get investment to expand, or starting businesses where they can see a gap in the market and can start to generate income for themselves and their families. It is lauded as one of the world's most powerful tools to allow rural poor to work their way out of poverty with pride and dignity and self-respect. And I've had the privilege of visiting many of our clients in multiple locations around the world, and, and it just blows me away at the level of poverty they've endured in their life. We are extremely lucky in the Western world that we really, beyond family trauma, we don't really have very much to complain about. And microfinance is one of the most powerful tools to allow people to create their own opportunities and destinies. Broadly speaking, we have similar opportunities in the Western world. So we now have investments in 40 plus countries. And to date, we have helped over 175,000 people, individual people, with our microfinance investments in the 10 years that the foundation has been running. So I'm personally very, very proud of that. But we honestly feel like we're just getting going. Uh, we have, <laughs> in many ways, you know, the world is full of problems and they also the world's full of money. So how do we go and create more businesses to capture some of that money in the world and then divert it to people who can use it to help themselves, I think, is a founding principle. So that is where we deliver our global impact. And in the UK, we have an enterprise education program called MicroTycle, which is free for kids in schools, universities and colleges and youth groups, things like the Brownies and the Scouts and local clubs all around the UK get involved in MicroTycle as a way to develop and challenge their inner entrepreneur. It's a ratified program by the likes of Education Scotland, Church of England, many of the academy chains down in England use it as a way to teach entrepreneurial thoughts and actions. The consequence of that program is that kids become more confident, dynamic, more resilient, more entrepreneurial in their thinking, not necessarily to start businesses, but to use the entrepreneurial mindset to make them more commercialized and more ready for the world of work. And the figures for Microtyco just in uh, February there, because we run it twice a year in November and February, over 40,000 young kids have been through Microtyco in over 19 countries now. Out of that 40,000, 34,000 are UK school kids. So we're, again, that, that's an amazing level of impact and something that we're proud of. But every year the figures go up, more and more kids want to be doing microcycle and what is becoming pretty exciting about that program is many of today's employers many of which are customers like Jaguar Land Rover, Deloitte and Johnson & Johnson are all starting to recruit directly out of the microcycle program so wow. those businesses are buying they're buying pens and paper from us which is great the profit from that business goes to the foundation, which keeps all the places for school kids in Microtyco, keeps those places free. And the kids are coming through Microtyco as little entrepreneurs with fantastically dynamic mindsets. And the likes of Deloitte are now recruiting them onto their internship programs, their bright start chartered accounting qualifications so the kids don't have to go to universities. 
and they're particularly targeting socio-economically deprived areas that Microtyco is involved in. So it gives some of those businesses a way to address social mobility by recruiting kids from really diverse backgrounds into their businesses as well. So that has come a long way since we started it and piloted it with two schools in Campus Lang. And it has now mushroomed into effectively a global program with schools as far afield as Afghanistan, uh, Switzerland, UK, and recently a school in New Zealand took part in Microtyco because they'd heard about the program and all we had to do was email over the, the electronic lesson plans and get them all going. So it's been a very, very interesting journey and, and you, we couldn't have written that script uh, back then, but we have a new target. So in, in total, we've now helped over five and a half million, we've invested, sorry, 5.5 million pounds in the foundation since we started and we've helped 225,000 people and we want to help a million people by 2020. That's our current target. So every new customer helps towards that. Every new school that gets involved in Microtycle helps towards that million people target. And it's great to watch it all develop. Wow, what an incredible range of different activities and the impact you're having too. And I can remember, I had heard a lot about you, but it wasn't until I came to that conference, and that must be about 18 months ago now, because I remember it was when I was just finishing off my book and really seeing the beautiful way that even at that event, it was held at one of your clients. It was a brilliant mix of people from school children to directors of CSR at large companies to young people that had set up social enterprises. The energy was brilliant and the way you brought them together and they got everybody connecting was just amazing. But it was also the hearing you being really clear as an organization, being very clear on, well, the impact that we want to have and the different ways in which we're going to do it. But also because you put on stage some of the, I suppose, the success stories. And it was lovely to see that and hear about that all coming to life as well. So just incredible work that you're doing. And I think it's important to point out, it's not all just our ideas, Alison, if you like. You, know, we're, you have to be open to sort of pivoting and, and letting some of the best ideas win. And companies recruiting out of Microtycle was never on our radar and was something that Deloitte came to us with and, and were the ones who wanted to pioneer it. So they've taken it in a whole different direction. Microfinance wasn't our idea. It was introduced to us, as I mentioned before, by Nell Young at the big issue. So you start to sort of think, oh, that's a good idea. Someone else has pointed us in a very effective direction. We have to be open to going down that road. You can't pivot all the time. But equally, the success stories of some of the kids and some of their ideas in Microtyco just blew us away. You know, if, if they were old enough to be employed, just give them a job you know, on the spot. Mm-hmm. So trying to showcase some of that talent, as you say, at our Global Entrepreneurial Leaders Conference is important because I think, generally speaking, people are talented, they're creative, they're values-driven, but they don't necessarily have a credible way to express it. And we can all be inspired to be better and get better. Every day, I'm trying to get better. I will never stop with that mindset. But driving help for other people can be done by everybody in every walk of life, regardless of the resources at their disposal. So it's important to give a voice in certain arenas 
to other social enterprises doing brilliant things because it's not all about wild hearts. We're just part of a movement. It's one of the reasons why you come along to our conference and we want you there because we want your thinking informed, not just by me, but by everybody else we can provide a platform for. And, you know, the world is full of rich stories and talent. And I think lots of people can rub off each other well. And we've all been there. You get an idea often from somebody else or when an idea you had is made better because of a conversation you had, a chance conversation you had with somebody else. So it's important that media is open to provide a platform for other people to come together and collaborate. And as you mentioned about coming together around values, it's pretty incredible in my experience what people will come up with when they start to connect with a value base. And particularly around business, I think there's a massive untapped potential. And we're all part of growing that potential, but there's a massive untapped potential of what the business community can do, even SMEs and even big corporates. Yeah, even just listening to you in this time that we've had together today, I've got little ideas that have been sparking, picking up on what you've just said there, because as I have gone further down the road with Give to Profit and I talk about as a business, I don't want to have a, a charity or a foundation or anything else. But I am getting to the stage where I am beginning to question and looking at the benefits of possibly setting up a foundation. Because picking up on one of the things you said earlier, to control where the money goes to and, and having choice over, over how you distribute the funds. And I can see that that for me, it may become something I do, but it might not. And, but just being open to that possibility and that thought is there. And the other thing that I think has sparked from what you've said is just about one of the ways you've been able to have the impact is to take your micro taiko out through the schools across the world. And I loved, you just said, it was just two words. It was being able to send an email with the electronic lessons to the school in New Zealand. And I thought, oh my Lord, just keep it simple. <laughs> Let's just look at it. <laughs> the way, because I mean, I'm looking just now and I'm in conversations just now with quite a number of people who want to become Give to Profit licensed um, trainers and consultants. Now, for some of them, there'll need to be quite an in-depth program, but for others, depending on what they're doing, they may not need to be. And so that again has just sparked something in my mind about there might be another way I can have greater impact by keeping some aspects of what I'm doing simple. So I think it's important that we keep our ears open. I like, I can remember once hearing, we have two ears and one mouth <laughs> for a reason, <laughs> you know, to listen, yeah, to absolutely. to listen to other people and have two eyes to observe as well. And then, you know, actually move forward. I'd my, like my granddad, sorry, Alice, I just okay. my granddad always has a great, a great phrase where he said, he said, son, you don't learn anything when you're talking. And that has... <laughs> Been a bit of advice here oh, yeah. that I've got a lot better, even though I'm talking a lot on this podcast, that actually when you sit back and let other people talk and, and develop their own ideas, it's amazing what you can take in and learn and then evolve your own thinking with. So yeah, all those old phrases have a lot of uh, virtue in them if you can train yourself to let them happen. Definitely. So I just want to come back to a couple of things that I'd really like to make sure that we do cover in the time that we've got available here. Would you be able to just explain what social sourcing is about so that any of our business owners listening to this could just have a get an idea of what it is and the types of things that they might be able to explore in terms of what they could um, source from social suppliers? Of course. So, yeah, in the world of uh, corporate speak, social sourcing is probably labelled social procurement. And I can give you some statistics that will help sort of bring this to life as well. But we, I think in a consumer world, and the majority of social enterprises are known 
in the B2C space, selling consumer products. And we're all quite aware of the fair trade symbol. That was one of the first symbols and ideas that came into the supermarkets that your average consumer could relate to. If you buy fair trade, then those farmers get a better deal. Simply stated, coffees, bananas, agricultural products generally. So the same is true of social enterprises, that generally social enterprises compete with other commercial businesses, but what they do with the profit means that either their staff get a fairer deal or they are much more inclusive businesses. Social enterprises tend to employ more women, tend to employ more people with disabilities, tend to have far, far, far fairer pay ratios, tend to pay the living wage, for example, tend to have more ethical supply chains and so on. And in the world of business-to-business social supply chains, businesses spend fortunes on keeping their businesses running. So it's important, the only way businesses can be successful is having successful suppliers. In the world of the FTSE 100 businesses, the average CSR budget is around £10 million, and the average procurement budget for a FTSE 100 company is between two and three billion pounds. So imagine the type of world that we would all live in if two to three billion pounds per FTSE 100 company was being spent solely with social enterprise and fair trade type businesses. So that's ultimately what drives me to drive Wild Hearts office on in the Wild Hearts group of companies. There's a massive marketplace to go after the money that companies are spending just to keep them running. So social procurement there, it's a profession, procurement professionals working in all types of companies, big and small, have money to spend on the company's behalf. And it can range from everything from stationery to furniture and offsite storage, some of the stuff that we sell, but all businesses will buy mobile phones, will buy fleet cars, will buy property, will buy uniforms, will buy maintenance services, will buy light bulbs. And the list is is a myriad of of spend, some big, some small, and some spend more important in some sectors than others, for example. But in the UK, there are 70,000 social enterprises. They employ over a million people now, and they contribute nearly £28 billion to the UK economy. So the social enterprise sector in the UK is not small by any standard. It's actually world-leading the UK is viewed as the leading social enterprise country in the world. So for SME businesses who are buying, I can give you some resources as well, Alison, some pointers to businesses like Social Enterprise Scotland, to Social Enterprise UK, uh, to Firstport. And some of the links you can get of these websites where there is a thing called the Buy Social Directory. I'll send you the, the email link for that where people can type in catering and get a list of social enterprise catering suppliers. You can put in something like painting and decorating. Imagine a business needs to give their offices a lick of paint. Well, across the UK, there are multiple suppliers who will deliver painting and decorating, and they might employ people with prison backgrounds. They might employ people with disabilities. You can still get up and down a ladder and paint a roof, but may require a different type of ladder or a little bit of extra training, a little bit of supervision, but ultimately they will do it at a competitive price. So the market's absolutely burgeoning and growing all the time. And there is really a sector that you can spend money on as a business where you can't do it with a social enterprise. So it's a little bit like fair trade in the supermarket, but just using your business 
to use the money you're going to spend anyway. And if you choose the supplier wise, you can create impact and feeling fantastic about how you've spent the money in a way that you've probably never really thought about it before. Yeah, it's funny, Colin, because it was when I was writing the book that I'd start. In fact, I'd, I'd obviously known about you guys another organization called Sama Source as well that was just really looking into what you guys were doing and then exploring the by social I was amazed at how much as business owners we can source from social suppliers I mean I think a lot of us as consumers have been making those conscious choices for quite a while but until you know a couple of years ago I did think about the venues I used but I'm just far far more conscious about those decisions now and I can remember I organized a workshop in December and went out and it was very much around I want the venue to be a social enterprise or a charity the catering we got from social bite you know so it was very very conscious decisions which I probably wouldn't have made three or four years ago in my business I think it is incredible way to save to have an impact and you're not spending any extra money yeah, that, that's ultimately what it is at its, at its core. You know, you need to be exposed to it in order for you to think differently. And this podcast does the same. And, and the more I've become exposed to it, the more I've been very aware of the capability of some of these businesses, the scale of some of these businesses. You know, to put it into perspective, one of our customers who's a large outsourcing business down in the southwest of England, the head of procurement is a good friend of ours now called Simon, Simon Ellis, and he has four daughters. And his four daughters don't never really knew what his dad did. And his dad's in charge of a multi-billion pound budget for this business. Now, his dad can make social enterprise choices at the supermarket. He can buy some fair trade stuff. He can buy some Rainforest Alliance coffee. But ultimately, can he change the world on his own? Well, him and his business spend a seven-figure sum with us on pens and paper and stationery. Seven figures with us. And that service line helps something like three and a half thousand people per year. So in his business and job role, he's responsible for helping three and a half thousand people per year. And it's just one of the things he can buy from us. So the scale of change globally from businesses using their wealth and their might in the social procurement sector is relatively unrivaled and is one of the most efficient ways to help the world become more socially sustainable and linking from money that they've got to spend in many ways. And consumers make the choice too. It's all part of the same mix. If you can make a choice that's got a more socially responsible output, it's great to make that choice. And and each of those individual behaviors adds up to a collective beneficial output when it all gets aggregated. So nobody should feel like, well, I can't help three and a half thousand people. But you should think about where you get your tea bags and your coffee because it's all part of the same conversation. Yeah, definitely. And it's just being mindful about that and communicating the conscious choices that we have as businesses as well. You know, I quite often talk about how, you know, it's, it is known now, you know, there's just so much research out there now on the fact that consumers prefer to buy from, work for, invest in businesses who care. And that part of that then requires us as businesses to communicate what we're doing to communicate how we're contributing, to communicate the impact that we're having. And of course, in order for us to be able to communicate the impact, we need to work and buy from or support organizations like yourselves who can actually tell us where our money's going and the impact because we can't communicate that impact unless we're actually partnering with organizations that can give us that information. Yeah, I think it's important that social enterprises hold themselves up to a degree of accountability in terms of their accounts and how they deliver that impact. And it's imperative that 
a social enterprise can trace a value of spend directly to a value of impact. Um, it holds itself up to that degree of transparency, but equally customers demand it. You know, companies like Deloitte, if they're going to spend you know, several um, hundred thousand pounds with us on our service lines, they want to and expect to know exactly where the profit from that business is going because we are a social enterprise. And they talk about the, that impact because we're not the only social enterprise in their supply chain, of course. Johnson Johnson are a good example. They have 17 separate social enterprises in their supply chain now, which is really fantastic. They've really put the money where their mouth is and strategically shifted to going out of their way to finding social suppliers. And that aggregated impact that Johnson Johnson creates, that business is very proud of it. All of their employees know all about it. When it comes to recruitment, they tell their potential employees everything that they're doing in the hope that those employees look at Johnson Johnson before other pharmaceutical companies and think, actually, they're doing a bit more for the world. I like what they stood for. Actually, I'm going to join Johnson Johnson before they'll join their rivals. So it is becoming a thing, as you say, that future talent, future workforces and consumers are all starting to think they want business to stand up for and be more accountable for some of the problems in the world. And it's great that the world's shifting to that level of thinking. And yeah, we can all help to play our part in that. Totally. Colin, I could just keep talking for ages, but I'm going to respect your time and everybody else that's listening to this as well. Would you like to um, just share maybe one more insight or tip with our listeners that, on any of the topics that you've touched on or, or maybe it's something that something else you'd just like to share? I think your listeners will already be thinking about giving and you know, start to think what more they can do. I um, obviously have a vested interest in the social enterprise sector, but just starting to seek some of those changes that they can make, whether it's through their choice on consumable products or where they want to give to, they make start to make small changes and I'm confident bigger changes will come off the back of it. And just start to find little ways to make a difference often just become bigger ways to help contribute to a wider movement. And just starting that process, many doors will open. And uh, I hope I've given them some insights into what we do and show that, you know, there are many others out there who are doing similar things just in, in maybe a slightly different way. Oh, you've certainly done that, Colin. It's been a, you literally have shared so much information and this conversation could have gone off in many, many different directions. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's great that we, you know, that we have gone off and, and looked at the scope of what you're doing both here and, and overseas. And I know that, that our conversation will have inspired lots of people listening into this. So thank you very much. And I want to thank everybody who's tuned into this episode as well. Please do remember to check out givetoprofit.com or alison.com for the full show notes where you will get details of how to connect with Colin and myself. And we'll also share some of the links that Colin mentioned in our conversation. And if you would like to learn how to raise funds for a charity or social cause through your business that's ethical, easy and complies with cause marketing legislation, remember to check out the Give to Profit fundraising challenge. So this is something which will also be detailed on the show notes. It's an online challenge that you can join any time. 
so that you can just learn how to raise funds for causes that are close to your heart or simply because you want to incorporate that into your business. So go to the websites I've mentioned where you'll be able to find out more. Thanks again. Until next time, remember, business is a great opportunity to be kind and what you do next matters. Thanks for listening to the Give to Profit podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes so you hear about our next episodes. It would be great if you left a rating and review of the show there too. For every review this month, Alison will be sponsoring a child to go to school for a day in Cambodia. You can connect and chat with Alison on Twitter using the handle at Alison Mac and through the Give to Profit Facebook fan page. And if you don't already have a copy of Alison's best-selling book, Give to Profit, How to Grow Your Business by Supporting Charities and Social Causes, you can get this on Amazon around the world.